God, we thank you so much that you have not only given us your word, but you give us personal help to understand your word. We thank you for your spirit. Um, and we ask that as we study your word, that he would open our eyes uh, to understand scripture and to understand you better. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to our Sunday school class on how we got the Bible. Uh, just a couple of introductory notes. If you're interested in going to the Museum of the Bible, uh, there's still time to sign up. So you can sign up at the Welcome Center. That trip is set for Saturday, March 21st. Uh, so we're excited about that. So go ahead and see the sign up has additional details about the trip if you're interested. Uh, if you're interested in getting any of the recordings for the class, either in the past or, or today, you can also sign up for that at the Welcome Center by using the sign-up sheet for the sermon recordings and just indicate in there that you'd like the Sunday School lesson. So as I mentioned, this class is seeking to answer the question, how do we get our Bible? Uh, so if you're new to this class uh, or if you've missed some of the classes, uh, we began to answer this question on the Bible's own terms by uh, trying to find out from the Bible how it presents itself. And we saw that it presents itself as God's very words to us, uh, along with many other details that you can get on the, sermon, or on the recordings. Uh, last week, we we pivoted to try to answer this question of how we got our Bible from the story of the Bible. So we talked about how as, as the Bible is written, it tells us how it came to be. Uh, and it might not answer every question that we have, but it, it tells us a lot about itself, and there's a lot to be learned there. And so last week, we uh, just surveyed the first five books of the, of the Old Testament uh, that were written by Moses. And today, we're going to attempt to survey the rest of the Old Testament to see how we got the Bible uh, from Old Testament history. But there's an interesting uh, challenge that we face as soon as we start looking at the rest of the Bible from the story of the Bible. And that is that Moses uh, tells us twice in his last book not to, not to add or diminish from uh, from the commands of the Lord. So Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So we have to face this question then. Do these verses mean that there would be no more scripture? Uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, what you think about it. Uh, this isn't uh, so much like a surprise question, right? Like you're all, you're all here uh, you're all uh, part of this church or attending this church, so you know that your Bible includes more than the first five books. But this isn't a completely hypothetical situation. Uh, the Samaritans of Jesus' day, and there are even some Samaritans today, uh, they only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. They do not believe that the rest of the Old Testament is uh, scripture, and they would not receive it that way. Uh, so I'm just curious, does anybody, does anybody have any thoughts about uh, what this could mean? Chuck. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so, so Chuck gives us a couple of helpful answers here. He talks about, uh, he, he mentioned that um, these verses are, seem to be indicating not to add to uh, God's word in the way that uh, maybe the Pharisees were in kind of creating a, a law around the law, um, which should be a real, in a real sense adding to God's law. Uh, and Jesus even talks about it that way, by the, how they add burdens onto the people. And then there are others who twist scripture and take away from what God has clearly said. And I think these are, I think that that is, that, I think that that's basically uh, a good way to understand what's being said here. Uh, in these verses, in Deuteronomy 4.2 and Deuteronomy 12.32, the focus, exegetically, like just if we, if we look at what the verses are saying, the focus seems to be on... Um, the commands of God uh, and on those covenant commands. So the focus, in other words, is on obedience to God's word, to God's laws as given. And God is saying that the people are not authorized to take away from God's law or to add to God's law because God is the only lawgiver. Um, and so under this interpretation, it's it's not uh, so much written scripture as a whole that's being considered, although that would be uh, related to it principally, um, but it would be uh, saying that God's people can't add to or take away from God's commands. Uh, if you don't agree with that interpretation, and if you, if you do take this as talking about written scripture as such, um, there are still other reasons to think that God's word wouldn't end here. Um, so another way of understanding this is uh, to understand it as saying that thou shalt not add thereunto, nor diminish. In other words, people cannot add to God's word or take away from it, but God can continue speaking. God's free to keep speaking because scripture is never man's initiative. Uh, it's always God's word, and God is free to continue speaking. So regardless of how uh, you interpret these verses, it's clear that God does continue speaking, right? And uh, not in a haphazard way. Uh, God's special revelation follows a distinct pattern. So I realize, unfortunately, it doesn't look like any of these scriptures are going to pop up on the screen for you. So I'm going to go ahead and just close this. Um, and if you want, you are welcome to turn to some of these passages, but I'm going to read them for you as well. And they're listed for you in the handout if you're looking for the reference. So now we're just going to pivot then to look at how does, how does scripture continue to be written? Uh, right? We're looking at the story of the Bible, uh, how the Bible was written. So how did it continue to be written after Moses? Well, the principle upon which scripture is revealed, rem you'll remember from last week, is that God continues to act and God continues to speak and God's actions and his speech go together. So God's redemptive work continues in the life of his people. God's redemptive work doesn't end with Moses. Uh, it continues in the life of Joshua and God's people, and God's covenant communication continues. So, Scripture is a record of God's actions, and Scripture is a record of God's covenantal communication with his people, and both of those things continue. And this is, in fact, uh, God's Scripture as God's covenant speech is why we call the two main parts of the Bible the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Does anybody know what another word for testament is? There's another familiar word to us that testament means. Tes yeah, covenant. That's exactly right. So testament is just a Latin word for covenant. 
So when we call our parts of the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're calling our two parts of the Bible the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And that's actually, uh, people didn't actually make that up. Uh, the Bible is, again, our cue for designating uh, it that way. So, uh, again, you're, you're welcome to look this up. But in 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says, uh, Paul's talking about, you know, uh, um, unbelievers, and he, he says that their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 3.14, some of your translations will read the reading of the Old Covenant. Um, and so Paul, they're writing in the, the New Covenant, the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, refers to the reading of the scriptures that they have, the Hebrew Bible, as the, as the Old Testament or as the Old Covenant. And the point to take away from that is that Paul, and scripture in general, understands itself to be God's covenantal communication with his people. God is acting in a relationship with his people that's based on the terms of the covenants that he's given them, and then he's speaking. He's speaking to them on those terms as he continues to act. So as we saw last week, um, God began that covenant communication by instructing Moses to write the book of the covenant in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 7. And then God continues his redemptive work through Joshua and through the judges and through prophets and priests and kings. And he continues not just to act, but he continues to communicate through Joshua and the judges and the prophets, the priests and the kings. So Joshua 1.1 says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, and then the Lord continues to, to speak to Joshua and through Joshua to the people of Israel. Until we get to the end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua 24, 26, which says, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So Joshua not only wrote down the words of the Lord, but he added them to the law of God, it says. So he has a self-awareness that what he's writing is a part of the continued story, is a part of the continued covenant communication from God to his people. And so Joshua adds his writing to the book of the law. He sees it all of a piece. And then that, that pattern of God's redemptive acting and his covenantal communication generally holds through the Old Testament. I think this is one of the, one of the simplest ways to understand, like, how did the Bible come to be? How did the Old Testament come to be? Uh, when our focus is on the Old Testament today, is to understand it as all of a piece that God is acting in a covenant relationship with his people and he's communicating with them on the basis of that covenant. And so that's what happens. God continues to act and speak through the judges and then through the kings and the prophets. So starting with judges, something, something very interesting happens because all the way up through Joshua, the, the main story that you've got there, right, is you've got the people 
coming, you know, out of Egypt in, in the law, so you've got all the way back to Abraham, you know, starting in Genesis, you've got this warning that uh, Abraham and his family are going to be in exile in Egypt for some 400 years. And then the story of the, the Torah, those first five books, is how they go into Egypt and then how they come out of Egypt. And then how they go back to that promised land that God promised Abraham and his family would have. And so Joshua kind of concludes in, in a significant way, kind of brings all of that to pass because they, they possess the land. Um, and it says there at the end of Joshua, and we remember this from the sermons, that not one word of God failed of all the good promises that he gave. And so there's a sense in which there's, a, there's an important um, kind of fulfillment that happens in Joshua. But then in Judges, the covenantal focus, the covenantal communication, takes a really interesting shift towards the king. Okay, so you'll remember that a very important covenant that God gives to his people is in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise, a covenant with David. And in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, God says, among other things, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And when that covenant was made, the hope of God's people, the hope of their relationship with God, of their the blessing coming from God is now focused on the king. And so the scriptures focus on the king. So, and this is the focus of the book of Judges, right? So repeatedly, especially as you get towards the end of the book of Judges, repeatedly there's emphasis on the lack of a king. So Judges 17, verse 6, says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges 18, verse 1, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19, verse 1, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And then the very last sentence in Judges, Judges 21, 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Judges, but it seems like it was written during a time when there was a king in Israel. Because it keeps referencing the fact that back then there was no king yet in Israel. And there were a lot of problems because there was no king in Israel. So then if we shift, so we've got Judges. And then um, what, is, what is the book of Ruth about? Real question. The book of Ruth is about more than one thing. So you don't need to worry that you're going to get this wrong. But the direction I'm headed might give you a clue about what Ruth is about. Redemption. Yeah, that's a great way of, of summarizing the message of Ruth. Yeah. And, oh yeah, Greg. Yeah, excellent. So, so you've, you've just tied the whole Bible story together and placed Ruth in the whole story of the Bible, which is excellent. Greg mentioned that Ruth uh, tells us the storyline of Jesus, of where Jesus comes from. And there, that's, that's wonderful because that ties the whole message of the Bible together, which is really what the kings are about. The focus on the kings is, leads us up to Christ. But Ruth is fascinating because Ruth is, is not merely about her own um, uh, nuclear family. It's not just about her, right? Um, it is about Naomi and Ruth in a, in a very real way. Um, but... And redemption is a good way to talk about it, too, because the book begins with the curse, 
right? It, it begins saying, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, so there it's situating us in the timeline, this is before the kings, when the judges were ruling, that there was famine in the land. And the book starts out with the curse, because there's famine, the people are driven out from their homeland, and then there's death, right? And death, of course, is the curse. The day you eat of this, you will die. So the ground is not yielding its fruit, and people are dying, families are broken apart, and there's estrangement from God, and bitterness from God. That's all Ruth 1. And then there's redemption that leads to this, the book ending with a son being born. But not just any son. Ruth 4, 17 says they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then, that's verse 17, but then there's about four more verses before the book ends. And it gives a genealogy that ends with the last word being, the last word of the genealogy is David. Yeah, the book is about David. The book is about David's family, uh, where he comes from. So this book, Ruth, as well as Judges, uh, again, was, it was probably written during the time of David or after, right? Because the book knows about David. Um, and the focus of Judges and Ruth, the, the focus of Scripture pivots to look at the king. And then within that framework, we can see quite nicely, right, how Samuel and kings, both of those, all those books, how they tell the story of these kings, leading to David especially, and focusing on him, and then tracking his sons and grandsons. <clears throat> and then, chronologically speaking, we have several important scriptures being recorded during David and Solomon's rule, right? Including a lot of the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, David and his son are doing what the kings should be doing, according to Deuteronomy 17. They are meditating on the law, and then they're worshiping God through their writings and collections. So, in a significant way, these writings written during the rule of the kings show how a life that meditates on God's law flourishes like a tree of life planted by flowing waters, like, like Psalm 1. In other words, through David and Solomon, we see the pinnacle of, of covenantal blessing. Right? First Kings 4 um, is a story about Solomon and all the splendor of his kingdom. And First Kings 4 to about chapter, chapter 8 uh, or 9 uh, talk about the building of the palace and the building of the temple. And it, that's about as good as it gets in Israel's history, uh, is under Solomon in particular. So, again, we're, we're, we're tracking the Bible story here. Like, how, how are things being written? Uh, why are things being written? Uh, they're focusing on God's redemptive acts through his covenants and his communication about that. And starting in Judges, it, it focuses especially on the king. But then something covenantally crucial happens with the kings. Uh, think about the story of Israel, uh, what we've been leading up to so far. Something covenantally crucial happens in the lives of the kings that, that again, pivots the focus of Scripture. What happens uh, under Solomon? What happens with Solomon? Yeah, yeah. His wives lead him away to other gods. So, so Solomon and the people following him, they break the covenant and worship other gods. And this is, this is fascinating. The better, if you read Deuteronomy, it is an amazing summary 
of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is encapsulated in Deuteronomy in a very significant way, and then the rest of the Old Testament is just Deuteronomy being lived out. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17 says this about the king. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, he shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. If you compare that, if you compare those verses with 1 Kings 10, 26 through 1 Kings 11, verse 8, that is exactly what Solomon does. Solomon exactly breaks Deuteronomy 17 and does what God forbid the kings to do. And then that covenant breaking persists in his sons, generation after generation. And something else happens when the covenant is broken. God speaks. God sends messengers. God sends prophets to warn the kings about their covenant breaking. And and we've got to remember that not every prophet in the Bible has a book named after them, right? So obviously you've got characters like Elijah and Elijah who are significant characters, don't have books named after them. And they kept confronting the kings. And there were many other prophets along with Elijah and Elisha who confronted the kings. And there's even, I can't remember the chapter, I wish I could, there's even a chapter where there is a there is a, a main prophet who the author seems to go out of his way not to name because it's not even the significance of the personality of the prophet. It's their function. They are God's mouthpiece warning the people about their covenant breaking and calling them back. So the prophets are sent by God and they warn the kings and the people on the basis of the covenant in Deuteronomy that if the covenant continues to be broken and if the people do not repent, that God will bring the covenant curses on them. And again, Deuteronomy 28 uh, through 31 encapsulate like the whole Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28 Just a slice of this, verses 49 to 52, says this. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, this is if they break the covenant, from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thine kin, or flocks, or thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. That is exactly what happens to the people. They break the covenant, and then the the prophets continually warn them, if you don't repent, these curses are going to come on you. And then the story records those curses coming on the people. First and second Kings especially traces out the wickedness of the kings that led ultimately to their destruction, the people of Israel being uh, taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians. And so we have several major prophetic books being recorded uh, during this time, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and these books record the calls to repent and the warnings about those curses. And several then of the prophetic books are written during the exile, Uh, books like Daniel. Um, Esther is also another story written about uh, the exile. And these books continue to call the people to repentance. They also give people hope. Uh, That's where we have the new covenant being promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. 
And then as the, as the story, as this covenantal story unfolds, under Cyrus, the people are allowed to return to the land and they begin rebuilding. So Ezra, Nehemiah record these events with Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi uh, being at the same time uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah uh, speaking to the people. And when the remnant returns, there is, there's an attempt to reboot the monarchy, uh, to put another king in Israel. But ultimately, that doesn't work. And with that failed monarchy comes a silence in God's covenant communication and in his redemptive action. And so, um, and we'll talk more about that probably next week, about that silence. So the trajectory of the Old Testament then, I'm trying to summarize, the trajectory of the Old Testament then goes something like this. Uh, this is the whole Old Testament. God creates a people in the Torah, those first five books in the law. By the way, that's what Numbers is about. God's organizing a people. That's why there's all these lists about where the people should be. And the, God's organizing a people. So God creates a people. He brings them into the land in Joshua. And then he gives them a king. And then the, there's a promise given of an eternal king to David and to his sons. But his sons then break the covenant along with the rest of the people. And then the covenant curses come upon the people. They're defeated and exiled. And then God speaks words of, of comfort and hope to them in the prophets, also warning them and calling them to repentance. And then a reprieve is given to them in the form of a returned remnant and with the promise of a new covenant. But that rebuilding that they do isn't enough, right? You remember this very powerful story when they're rebuilding the temple, that older generation that knew the glory of the prior temple. They see the new temple and they cry and they weep because it's not glorious. And God's presence isn't there. In Ezekiel, God's, God's Shekinah glory leaves the temple. And so the older generation grieves. They're, this is a um, more bitter than sweet moment when there's a rebuilding. And the monarchy cannot be reestablished. So to then summarize it even tighter, the Old Testament is a story of God making his covenant and then fulfilling the blessings and curses of the covenant. So, God's action to make the covenant and fulfill those blessings and curses are recorded in writing. And that covenantal action then is the backbone of scripture. So the Old Testament ends with this unresolved tension that expects a new covenant. And Malachi, one of the last prophets chronologically in, at the end of our Bibles in English, seems to express an awareness of this tension, saying with, these are the, some of the final words of Malachi. In Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there's this, this expectation at the end of Malachi that Elijah's coming, and that in the meantime, they need to remember what has been written. And then there's a silence for some 400 years. And then John the Baptist starts speaking, and then Jesus comes. So, um, I'm going I'm to pause here before, I, before we continue and talk about how the Old Testament was received um, to just ask if, if anybody has any questions or comments about the storyline of the Bible. Everything that I just said doesn't address every single verse or passage or book, but I think it ties it together. Yep, Jean.
That's okay. Yeah, so you're just referencing that there, there are angels involved in that, that revelation. Yeah, that God gives. Yeah, and that's uh, most uniquely the case, especially when God starts speaking again, right, in the New Covenant. He comes, the angels come and talk to um, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, right, uh, when John the Baptist is going to be born, and then angels come to Mary and Joseph, yeah, and to the shepherds, yeah, Jim. Yeah, yeah, I've been, <clears throat> yeah, and that, you know, one of the practical implications that that ought to have on us, reading our Old Testament, ought to make us uh, very sober in our evangelism, right? We're not just trying to, like, get people to join our club. Like, this is, this is serious. This is eternal life and death. And all of the, one way of understanding, you know, all these curses that come in the Old Testament is a foretaste of the final judgment that will come. Uh, these are all warnings. This final judgment is coming. This is real. And just as surely as it happened then, it will happen again in the future. Yeah. All right, well, let me, let me shift then and talk about how the Old Testament was received and recognized. Uh, so this section here, what I'm intending to address in a way, is questions related to um, why we have the books that we have in the Old Testament, or another a word that we use for that sometimes is, is canon. Uh, and this is not an irrelevant conversation, right? Uh, as I mentioned before, the Samaritans only accept the Torah, the first five books, and then the Roman Catholics have more books in their Old Testament. So I want to talk a little bit about how this was received, how the Old Testament was received. First, the Old Testament was received as self-attesting. So what do we mean by that? Um, what we mean is that a group of people did not determine what the Bible was. Uh, the, the church doesn't create the Bible. Uh, some people will say this, that the, that the church or some leaders, a segment of the church, made the Bible what it is. But God's people, we don't make the Bible. In fact, the opposite is true. God's word is what creates his people. Um, so, we don't make the Bible. We, the words that are most uh, helpful and I think accurate is that we recognize what the Bible is and we, we receive it. So as we've observed, um, I'll try to work this out a little bit. So as we've just observed, scripture was written progressively. So in, in total, the Old Testament was written over the span of a millennium. Um, Moses started writing about 1400 BC. Malachi finished up around 400 BC. And so it's not like the Old Testament just like fell out of heaven in a complete book. It wasn't like that at all. Um, these scriptures were, um, were written and then on their own merits, as they were written, they were received for what they were and for what they presented themselves to be as God's word. And it happened very early on, right? So the Torah, the law of Moses was accepted as God's word almost instantaneously, almost immediately, right? And it presents itself as God's word. This is the book of the covenant from God through Moses. And so in Joshua 1, you know, immediately God's people are told to meditate on that law. Um, and so it immediately becomes the center of their spiritual life and it's their authority. 
In 1 Kings 2, verse 3, you know, David affirms that the Torah, those first five books, are God's word. And then Psalm 19, Psalm 119, they're all affirming that, that the Torah, those books of Moses, are God's word. And then in the Hebrew Bible, um, so I, when I talk about a Hebrew Bible, I mean, like, um, our Bibles include the Old and New Testament. A Hebrew Bible only includes uh, the Old Testament. Um, and so in the, in the Hebrew Bible, Judges through Kings is referred to as the former prophets. And they're getting that from Zechariah 7.12. And Zechariah 7.12 affirms that the former prophets were the words of the Lord written down by the Spirit. So they were also affirmed that way. Uh, Greg Lanier, who's written a, a very helpful book called How We Got the Bible, he says the overall pattern is that the later inspired writers were acknowledging the divine authority, the scriptural status of antecedent writings remarkably early. They did not wait for a later council. So as scripture is being written, God's people are recognizing it for what it is. One way to see that is uh, by how they treated these documents. And so that's the next point on the outline, is that these writings were placed in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then later on in the synagogues. In Deuteronomy 31, 26, God told Moses to put the book of the law in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And then as people continued to write, they would put the books in the same place. So 1 Samuel 10, 25 shows that pattern of storing the sacred writings uh, in the tabernacle and then in the temple. 1 Samuel 10, 25 says, Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So all the books weren't going there right? They weren't just like journaling and then putting their journal in the temple. Uh, Samuel wrote down a book and they recognized this book is different, unique, and authoritative, and so they laid it up with the law of Moses. And then that's the place where they found the book of the law in 2 Kings 22, which we've talked about earlier in the class. So they were treating them in a unique way. Uh, and then the biblical writings, the third point here is that the biblical writings were treasured as sacred as shown by the many copies, translations, quotations, and commentaries that were written about uh, the books that were being received as God's word. So, um, you know, there's just lots of instances I could give you. Jeremiah 26 quotes Micah 3.12. Ezra 1 quotes Daniel 9. Ezra 5 references Haggai and Zechariah. They are, they are recognizing and uh, quoting other scriptures as they're writing. And uh, Greg Lanier in his book, he again says helpfully, the books received as scripture were, on the whole, copied far more frequently than the others, than other non-biblical writings. They were also typically copied onto more durable material. Uh, typically, only scripture books were deemed worthy of commentaries. And the earliest translation efforts in Greek and Aramaic were privileging those books that they considered to be scripture. Um, and so they're, they're receiving it all in a unique way. Um, I want to try to briefly just mention this threefold form. I might come back to it next week because it's fascinating. And you, you'll, you'll need the handout for this. If you don't have the handout, pick up one in the back on the way out. On the back of the handout, it talks about how the, the Hebrew Bible was received in a threefold form. And I'm not going to go into detail about that. You can just kind of read through this. But there's basically three sections uh, of, the, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and I just need to clarify here, the Hebrew Bible, if you picked up a Hebrew copy of the Bible, it would not look like, it would not be in the same order as our English Bibles. Our English Bibles get their order from the Greek and Latin translations of the Bible, not from the Hebrew. And, and even here, we need to recognize, right, that the Hebrew Bible, when it was being written, was being written on 
scrolls, right? And so even the sense of order that we automatically think about with a book, right? Because books are in sequential order. They didn't, they didn't have that order initially when things were written. But over time, uh, there did come to be three sections of scripture that were identified and recognized. And those three parts were the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, there's lots of interesting things that I could say here, but the, the most clear thing to point out about all of this is that, that Jesus just seems to recognize this. He recognizes that threefold form of the Old Testament in Luke 24, verse 44. It says that these, Jesus is speaking. He says, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. So there's the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms. The Psalms are that third section of writings. Um, and so he recognizes the scriptures of the Old Testament to take that threefold form. And the point, the upshot of all of this, is that it wasn't the case at all um, that there was just complete mystery about what the Bible was. There was a recognized form that the Bible had by Jesus' time. And so by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the, the Bible was recognized, it had a recognizable shape and form to it. Um, so, you know, Jesus never debated which books were in the Bible uh, with his opponents when they were arguing. They all appealed to the same texts. The closest thing we get to that, to a debate about scripture, is in John 4, when Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman, um, because they had a different version of the Torah that told them to worship on a different mountain, and they didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament. But Jesus affirms the, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, in his conversation with her and then later in his ministry. And then Paul also affirms the Hebrew scripture. So he does this in Romans twice. He does it in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, and Romans 9, 4. He just affirms the Jewish scripture as God's word and as the Bible. So all of that uh, to try to demonstrate how scripture was received. It was received as self-attesting, and then uh, over time, it was recognized for what it is as God's word. And that's important uh, we're going to pick this up next week by talking about the Apocrypha. What do we do with the Apocrypha? Because the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church receives that as God's word. And we don't. Why not? Well, these, these are the reasons. Uh, and so I'll try to work that out and explain that next week. But next week, I'm going to refer to these things. These are the reasons why those things uh, weren't received. Yes? Okay. Yeah, thank you for doing that. He mentioned that the, the Amish also use the Apocrypha. I did not know that. All right, well, for the sake of time, I'm going to have to pray and conclude. Um, there's lots more, of course, that can be said. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to find me. I'm, I'm happy to chat with you about anything. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the power of your word, for the self-evident power of it. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to receive your word, even now as we worship together, that we would receive it with humility and for what it really is. And we pray that our lives would be shaped and changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.